The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Father, thank you uh, for what we have learned so far. Lord, thank you for um, very meticulously designing lessons for us this morning and uh, filling in holes for us and teaching us where we need to be taught. And Lord, now I pray that you would continue to do the same. Uh, Lord, right now, would you please uh, speak to each one of us, uh, help us to understand the role that we play, the role that you play uh, in our sanctification. And uh, Lord, please, for each one of us, I pray that um, certain things would be clarified such that uh, more and more glory would go to you and less and less would go to us. And uh, Lord, that uh, as a result, um, our lives may reflect and grow even more so uh, in their effectiveness for uh, expanding the kingdom and glorifying your Son. And we give this time over to you and ask you to do great and mighty things in and through it. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. I'm going to bring things a bit out of the uh, theological ethereals and uh, make this very, very pragmatic. Um, what I'm going to be speaking on is the sanctification by the Holy Spirit, uh, basically, once you're saved, what then does uh, happen in your life and who's responsible for it? Um, but what guided me through uh, what I put together here was basically, uh, you know, this is a letter to the younger me. Um, you know, what are the things that I struggled with in my understanding in my earlier Christian walk that I wish somebody would have told me early on? Uh, so that I could have some direction in, uh, you know, again, what the role the Holy Spirit plays and what role I do or do not play myself. Uh, so, I do not like basketball. I hate it. Uh, it is certainly not one of my passions. I cannot dribble, shoot, or jump on a level necessary to be an effective basketball player. I've done things at various times to improve or simply obtain basketball skills. The game frustrates me to the point where, if I'm engaged in a game, I will resort to using skills characteristic of a game that I do love, football. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, though, it is just a matter of time before I leave the court frustrated again because blocking like an offensive lineman and tackling like a defensive end are not skills permissible in basketball. In the 1970s, uh, early 1970s, I was living in Philadelphia and became aware of a man who did love basketball and was quite extraordinarily talented with it. His name was Julius Irving, Dr. J. He had a passion for the game and an ability that made his participation in it look second nature. He could dribble, uh, and he could do so around hostile opponents who were trying to take it from him. 
without losing any control of the ball. He could fly through the air over the out-of-bounds territory while faking a layup on one side of the basket and uh, reaching around and sinking it on the other. Became known for that shot. He could make distance shots that others would not even attempt and do so in such a way that seemed effortless and simply what he was created to do. He didn't have to make himself do these things as I would have to. They were just his nature. Now, let's pretend for a moment that we could take Dr. J's mind and somehow cause it to integrate with mine. I would instantly experience some changes. First of all, I would have a newly found passion for this game that, left to my own devices, I can't stand. A passion that would operate in spite of my traditional disdain for the game. I would also experience a heightened spatial sense and reflexive response to other stimuli that would help me approach the game more strategically and skillfully. My newfound passion would also motivate me to change my dietary and exercise habits. Part of the reason why I can't jump. My receptivity to instruction related to basketball skills would increase because now I would have the capacity or the template with which to understand the rationale behind what the coach is telling me. Right now, it doesn't make any sense at all. Ultimately, I would become a master at something that, if left to my own devices, would not have been even remotely achievable without the insertion of Dr. J's spirit into my own. Now, while there are some significant limitations to that analogy that I just gave, in many ways it still illustrates the key dynamics related to God's insertion of his Holy Spirit into the believer and the changes that are introduced therein. Left to our own devices, we are what the Bible calls the natural man. So that's the lingo or the terminology that we're going to use. The most fundamental problem with being a natural man is identified in 1 Corinthians 2.14 where it states that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So the first thing that we want to look at are the significance to that. Uh, What is our initial condition as natural man? If we don't understand that, then applying anything related to that is not going to make any sense. So... What we want to do is consider what kind of a mess we are when we're left to our own devices. The other day, uh, I was sent a digital picture in an email uh, by a friend who took this on his camera. Now, his his camera was very high-tech, very modern, um, in contrast to my computer. In order to open up and view this picture, my computer needed a program that it did not have. The picture was sent to me and effectively made it to my vicinity, but no matter what I tried to do, my computer just couldn't open the file, and uh, it made it unusable to me. I still have the picture on file. It's still in my computer, but I still can't open it up. I still don't know what it is because I don't have that program necessary to make it make sense. The natural man is like my computer without the necessary program to interpret the file. The natural man can sit under the best preachers, preaching the best sermons, communicating biblical ideas with the greatest of eloquence and thorough examination. But unless he has the right program that makes spiritual things make sense, spiritual things will be foolishness to him. 
The natural man can register physical things just fine, such as the smell of coffee. You don't need to be saved to smell coffee. The feel of petting a dog, the sight of a beautiful flower, the invigorating sound of a full stadium at your favorite team's game, uh, or the taste of Haagen-Dazs chocolate ice cream. Okay, but that is because the natural man has those physical receptors and processors. He does not, however, have spiritual receptors unless they have been introduced into him. And at that point, he's no longer natural man. Without those spiritual receptors, the Holy Spirit program downloaded into his hard drive, so to speak, ideas that come from the mind of God and the reasonings behind them will just be perceived as silly and nonsensical. Okay? Only the Spirit of God can make sense out of what the Spirit of God thinks or says. Again, left to our own devices, we do not have the capacity to do that. If there's anything that God states that we agree with and that we can amen, it is because there's a computer program inside of us now that properly reads it and can produce that response. Because left to our own devices, we do not have that response. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? In other words, you don't know what I'm thinking because it's contained within the recesses and confines of my twisted mind. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. So we've got to ask the question, if I ever come to know or understand or perceive the thoughts of God, how did they get there? Okay, because only God knows that. For us to know, understand, and embrace as truth those things that come from the mind of God, we must first have God's Holy Spirit residing in us. A second problem with being natural man is that while things of the Spirit are perceived as foolishness, things that seem right and wise are actually self-destructive. God says in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. And in Proverbs 14, 12, God points out that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. In our natural state, we don't just think differently than God. We think antithetically to God. And where his thinking brings life, ours being opposed to his brings about death. A third and maybe most obvious problem is that every tree is known by its fruit, and our fruit isn't so pretty. As natural man, our drive comes from what the Bible calls our flesh. Uh, a more poetic way to state that is the abode of our passions. Galatians 15:19 through 21 expresses manifestations of the flesh by stating, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're characteristic of the natural man. In Romans 1, 28-31, natural man is described as having a depraved mind. Quote, 
to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Those are things that characterize the natural man. Interestingly enough, in Galatians 5, it ends that passage by saying that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not not inherit the kingdom of God because they do those things. They do those things because they are the natural men who will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've got to make sure that we put the cart before, or after the horse, rather. Okay. Now, if our objective is to consider our sanctification by the Holy Spirit, uh, why then are we spending so much time during this talk examining the mess that natural man is uh, prior to the Spirit entering his life? It is because we have no comprehension of the magnitude, and I'm going to give you an illustration here. We have no comprehension of the magnitude of something like that bleach has on a pair of blue jeans unless we have first seen the condition of those jeans prior to the effects of the bleach. To more clearly see the Holy Spirit's role and effect in sanctifying us, it is necessary that we see ourselves as we are prior to our being changed by the Holy Spirit, or it just won't make sense. It is also critical that we see that it is impossible for corrupt, natural man to change himself through feeble attempts that circumvent the Holy Spirit. So, second thing we're going to look at is our inability to sanctify ourselves. Without the Spirit, we can neither love God nor keep His commandments. That's Augustine. It is our nature to do those things the Bible listed as natural. That's the track that we run on. That's the default mechanism. It is also, along with that, our nature, even once we have become saved, to then try to fix the flesh by the use of the flesh. Paul rebukes the Galatians for doing just that when he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I wanted to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, that's a rhetorical question. He, he knows what they know, and they know that they've received the Spirit by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And there is so much of the church, at least in this country, if not worldwide, that is trying to perfect itself in the flesh. Flesh cannot fix flesh. Corrupt cannot fix corrupt any more than pneumonia can fix pneumonia. In fact, it will protect itself by promoting its interests. In Galatians 5:16-17, Paul says that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. If we are to be changed from our horrible natural state, it is crucial that we understand that our flesh is entirely unreliable in bringing about that change. And we must recognize that the only viable agent of change is God's Holy Spirit. Corrupt can't fix corrupt. 
Third point is our complete dependence on the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. We've established that we are a mess uh, when left to our own devices. We've established that we cannot change ourselves. Ourselves are the mess to begin with. And again, corrupt can't fix corrupt. But now we've got to understand that change must take place. We've been commanded to change, to be sanctified. So then we've got to ask the question, how does that come about? That requires our complete dependence on the Holy Spirit as the agent of change rather than anything else. Trying to do the Lord's work, according to Carrie Ten Boom, in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. When the Holy Spirit awakens us to the truth of the gospel and we embrace Christ as Savior, we become more aware of the differences of sin, uh, sinful and righteous behavior, and now want to become more and more like our Savior. Okay? So he changes that pretty quickly. Unfortunately, we often make the Galatian mistake and strive to become holy and righteous through our own fleshly efforts. And that's where the confusion comes in. Jerry Bridges reminds us that sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, whereby our inner being is progressively changed, freeing us more and more from sinful traits and developing within us over time the virtues of Christ-like character. So, he's ripping the bad stuff out, he's building the good stuff in. As the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, he becomes our divine surgeon. He removes bad things, and he builds good things in. Now... Where do we see these things? There are three principal areas in which we see this happen. The first is in our mind. In in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul reasons in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, where he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? We looked at this already. This is taking place in the mind. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world any longer, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. When we receive Christ, we are also given his Holy Spirit. It's not a later event. Okay, it's a group deal. The computer program needed to understand the file is now present. The Holy Spirit necessary to understand the Holy Spirit, which cannot be understood by natural and unholy man, is now present. Once the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify our minds, he then makes it possible for us to be sanctified in the next area. So he begins with the mind. The second principal area in which we see the Holy Spirit sanctify us is in our mission. In John 16, 12 through 14, we see Jesus pointing out what the Holy Spirit's mission is. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Why not? The computer program is not there yet. The Spirit's coming, though. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now catch this. This is the big payoff here. 
because I, I think it was Jim that mentioned that there are a lot of things going on in our culture today that are allegedly related to uh, the Holy Spirit, but void of the Son. And that's a dangerous thing. Verse 14, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. That's what the Spirit does. For He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. In Acts 1.8, Jesus once again declares what the Holy Spirit is driven to do. Where He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's interesting. What happens when the power comes upon you? How does it manifest? You shall be my witnesses. Okay? None of this bizarre stuff that, that we see in our culture today. The Holy Spirit's power is equated with being witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Not only does the Holy Spirit sanctify us in our mind and then in our mission, but he begins a radical movement to change our manners. In Ezekiel 36, 27, 26 to 27, God tells his people exactly what he's going to do at this time. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, this is why I opened with the illustration that I did. In order for me to function as Dr. J, it would be required that the mind of Dr. J be meshed into mine. Without that, there's no confirmation. I, I just can't do it. Same thing here. What we're told here is not that Dr. J's spirit will be integrated into ours, uh, otherwise, we would all become great, passionate basketball players. Instead, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What does this look like? How do we know the spirit is in the process of sanctifying us? We actually observe change, and it is the change that results from a changed internal motivation as opposed to an external restraint by law. In contrast to the fruit of the flesh that we read about earlier from Galatians 5, Paul immediately follows that list with another and identifies the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and concludes it by saying, against such things there is no law. These qualities are not produced by following rules that, that are implemented on someone. They are instead manifestations of the Holy Spirit living in you who increasingly conforms your passions to his. Laws created for the lawless, okay? For those who have the Holy Spirit uh, or God's law written on their hearts, it's an internal motivation rather than an external restraint. We have examined what our helpless and pitiful condition is prior to the Holy Spirit's insertion into our lives. We've seen from Scripture that that it is impossible for us to be our own agent of change in the process of sanctification, and that the only capable agent in that process is the Holy Spirit. Finally, we considered three principal areas, our mind, our mission, and our manners, in which we see sanctification under the Holy Spirit's direction manifest itself. In closing, we must note one last thing. 
uh, because there's a whole facet of this that we haven't addressed yet. While we cannot bring about our own sanctification, we can indeed influence it to some degree, both positively and negatively. As we love the Lord and thus do what he commands, we will study the scriptures, we will fellowship with the brethren, we will abstain from immoral behavior, and we will pray regularly with a, uh, about substantial matters. At the same time, we must ever be aware that our flesh still wars against the spirit, and we do have the capacity to allow it its share of victories. Okay? Know that on this side of heaven, your flesh will never stop being your flesh. Its impulses will never disappear completely. And you will be at war within yourself until you go home to be with the Lord. In fact, we know from God's word that it becomes even more corrupt. Hoping for the temptations of the flesh to just go away can be an endless engagement of futility. It doesn't work. We can, however, replace our intrigue and submission to those temptations with pleasures that are Christ-centered and do synchronize with our sanctification. John Piper states, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. Forget about telling your flesh to stop liking something that it likes. It's not going to listen. Instead, replace fleshly passions with godly ones that the Holy Spirit has now enabled you to have and understand. In Colossians 3, 1-2, we are commanded to keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. Redirect your attention. Pray. We are told in Romans 12 to present our bodies as living sacrifices and, and to not be conformed to this world, but instead to renew our minds. That takes place by uh, replacing worldly thinking with godly thinking that we find in the scriptures. Study. Paul tells Timothy to flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's Christian fellowship. These are all things that we can do. Uh, and if we couldn't, we wouldn't be commanded to do them. What needs to be pointed out, though, is that while we are called to obey certain commands and carry out certain actions, the charge and the change that takes place in our hearts beyond our actions is induced by the Holy Spirit. We respond to the commander-in-chief with, yes, I will do. He responds by then taking what we've done and, and uh, driving it home and grafting it into us by his Holy Spirit. What I'd like to do uh, as I close now is just pray for us that the Lord would indeed, by his Holy Spirit, um, strengthen, uh, greater equip us from the inside, uh, and that we would be wise and uh, attentive to that leading of the Holy Spirit to do the things that he will run with to do those things that are conducive uh, to his working in our lives and that we would not quench the spirit, that we would not stagnate his sanctification process in our lives. So let me pray for us.